From Washington, this is Talking Tax. I'm Siri Belusu. This week, we're talking about how U.S. states are handling a new category of offshore income created by the 2017 federal tax law. Congress created GILTI, that's the Global Intangible Low Tax Income, to stop multinational companies shifting profits abroad through intangible assets like intellectual property, royalties, patents, and things like that. The tax is triggered if a company's overseas tax rate falls below a certain threshold. The thing is, state governments often conform their own tax laws to the federal tax code. But with guilty, state approaches are all over the map. For most states, it'll mean a very modest increase in their corporate tax base. But for companies, it can mean dealing with multiple sets of rules. I spoke with Bruce Fort, counsel to the Multi-State Tax Commission. We got together at the American Bar Association Tax Section's fall meeting in San Francisco. We talked about guilty and how states are dealing with some of the other international taxes introduced in the 2017 tax law. So Bruce, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. States seem to be all over the map when it comes to the way they're choosing to tax the federal global intangible low taxed income. What are the various positions states are taking? Well, the, the big question is uh, the states have been wrestling with is guilty the equivalent of a dividend? Because most states, in response to a 1992 Supreme Court case, stopped taxing foreign dividends. And so the states are really wrestling with the idea, is guilty more like domestic income that has been deemed domestic income by, by Congress, or is it more like a foreign income that is being sort of forced repatriation back into the U.S.? So that's really been the problem, is the states are wrestling with how do they categorize it, both as a matter of state law and a matter of state policy. So what, so what are we seeing the states doing about that? Well, um, I would say the vast majority of states are including a very small amount of guilty in the tax base, somewhere around 5 to 10 percent. You have about 14 states that are taxing a, a higher percentage, or including the tax base, up to 20 percent. A few states even go as high as 50 percent. Um, so you have you have a long, a wide range there. And again, I think that the lack of consistency among the states is being driven by this uncertainty as to what to call this income. Is it foreign income or is it domestic income? What role does the multi-state tax commission play in all of this? Well, we are uh, in an advisory role. We have uh, had several teleconferences where we've tried to educate the state attorneys as to what, how we feel about guilty, what it is, what it isn't. And, uh, but we don't tell the states what they should do. That's not our role. So it's, it's an educational role. I wouldn't even say advisory, but just educational. So as states are going about figuring out these formulas and calculations, how much revenue are they expecting to gain if they do choose to grab a slice of their guilty? Uh, that has been, a, that's a very interesting qu question. The state revenue predictions are all over the map, unfortunately. Uh, I think Minnesota had the highest revenue prediction of, of maybe $100 million a year, but it has been all over the map. And it's a function of several things. Um, if you are a combined filing state, it's much more likely that guilty will be in your tax base. If you are a separate entity state, uh, the guilty income may flow through an entity that is not subject to tax in that state. Um, most major corporations have established a holding company up above their operating companies. 
and that holding company may or may not have, have uh, income in the state. So um, the revenue projections have been all over the map, but uh, anywhere from a 5 to 7% to a 10% increase in their corporate tax bases. That's uh, sort of, I'd say, the average of what I've seen over and above what they would have been collecting if they had not taxed any of the guilty. So it sounds like these states are taking all these different approaches and that it's also specific to the facts of each company. It can be, yes, uh, because there is uh, an ability to uh, decide which member of your federal consolidated group will be booking the income. And whoever is the owner of what we call a controlled foreign corporation, a CFC. And so uh, there is some flexibility among corporations as to who they want to be the, the record owner. So are we seeing a reaction from companies to the mismatch in state guidance? Uh, we've seen a lot, of, uh, a lot of companies requesting that states get their act together and get more guidance, yes. Uh, a lot of states like California um, have a 2015 uh, static conformity date, and so it's up to California if should they choose to, um, to, to conform to uh, guilty. They have not done so. So I think you'd have a lot of uh, a lot of companies very happy with California's current lack of conformity, if you will. They're still conformed on this issue to the 2015 tax year. That's really interesting. So, so would would aggressive state taxation of guilty possibly push companies to reconsider where they're locating? You know, I don't think so for a number of reasons. Uh, the main reason is that. Most states have now have what we call a single receipts factor. Instead of using a three-factor formula, it's a receipts factor. That means that the tax liability is essentially pushed out to the market states. And so if you are a manufacturer in California, uh, you don't have a property or payroll factor here. You only have a sales factor. And those sales are destination-based. So the fact that California, if they chose to, would tax you know, X percentage of guilty doesn't actually affect your tax base if you're a California manufacturer because you might have very, very low uh, tax liability here to begin with. So for, for that reason in particular, I don't think you would see um, any kind of a corporate reorganization or corporate uh, transfer of assets in response to the state taxation of guilty. It's a, it's a footnote. Some states are requiring companies to include guilty on their state tax returns, while others are not. So for the states that are, there seems to be a lack of concrete guidance on how companies should allocate guilty to the state tax base. Can you walk us through what that means and why it's problematic? One of the big issues with guilty right now is how it should be apportioned. And there, there are two school of thoughts on this. One is there should be some sort of factor representation. In other words, it should the property payroll and sales of the controlled foreign corporations that that have created the guilty income, if you will, that are that even though the income is reported on the uh, uh, U.S. corporation's taxable income, there's certainly an argument to be made that this represents some foreign earnings to a certain degree. So there's been a push with taxpayers saying, include the property, payroll, and sales of our overseas subsidiaries to the extent that this guilty income is being included in the U.S. tax base. Uh, New York has, has done something similar by including guilty in the denominator, but not the numerator. They don't, they don't assign it to any state at all. They just put in a denominator. And I think a number of states, Nebraska has chosen to follow that as well. 
And so that is a, a, that is a second alternative. A third alternative is not to include guilty at all in the apportioned base. Most states have now changed their definition of receipts to mean receipts from transactions in the ordinary course of business and wouldn't really include receipts from a dividend, a capital gain, or that kind of income. So the extent that guilty represents non-operational income, it wouldn't necessarily go into the receipts factor at all. There's also a discussion about whether states are acting within their constitutional rights by requiring companies to include this offshore income on state tax returns. What are the challengers to the state's taxations? What are they saying? Uh, the tax practitioners who are asserting that the states lack the constitutional authority to tax guilty, two major arguments. One is this does truly represent extraterritorial income. It represents not the earnings of the U.S. parent, but the earnings of a controlled foreign corporation operating outside the U.S. And I think the answer to that is Congress has deemed this to be the income of the U.S. parent. And I think the states are entitled to rely on that classification, if you will. Congress has not chosen to call this a dividend. In fact, um, under the new territorial tax system, foreign dividends, true foreign dividends, aren't going to be taxed at all under 245A of the Internal Revenue Code. Uh, the second argument, again, is based upon the Kraft General Foods case, Kraft General Foods v. Iowa, a 1992 case that said if a state uh, does not tax domestic dividends, if they have an allowance for domestic dividends, then they can't tax foreign dividends. They can't include it in the apportioned base without violating the Foreign Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, that case was limited to separate entity states, and in a very famous uh, footnote 23 to the Kraft decision, the court said, well, we don't see the same kind of facial discrimination for a domestic combined filing state, a water's edge state. Now, a majority of states now have gone to that method, water's edge filing. And so again, under footnote 23, uh, that would suggest that those states don't have an issue at all. Uh, I think more importantly, though, the Kraft case is, stands for the proposition that if you have a discrete income item that is taxed foreign and not taxed domestically, that's a problem. There is no domestic equivalent of guilty, if you will. So I don't think I, I don't think that the Kraft case is going to apply either to separate entity states, again, because it's not a dividend, and there's not this mirror kind of domestic income not getting that treatment. And, sec and uh, secondly, the majority of our states are now combined filing. They're relying on that footnote 23 of the Kraft decision. There have been five state court decisions since Kraft, all relying on footnote 23 to say, Combined filing states don't have the same craft problem. Are we going to see companies taking legal action against states that choose to tax guilty? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't think we are going to see it for some time. We haven't seen anything yet. I, I actually don't think we will see it. If there, if there is action, um, I think the states have a, have a ready remedy. And that ready remedy is what's called worldwide combined reporting. And so... I think we all agree that states cannot tax income earned outside their borders. In a 1983 case called Container Corporation versus Franchise Tax Board, the U.S. Supreme Court basically endorsed worldwide combined reporting and said that that does not reach extraterritorial values. So if a taxpayer is concerned about a state's treatment of guilty, 
I would think that the remedy for that taxpayer would be to allow it to file on a worldwide combined basis. And I think that many taxpayers would not like that opportunity, and yet I think that's kind of the obvious remedy for the states to offer that taxpayer. So if, um, I'm getting, if I'm understanding you correctly, earlier when we were talking about how companies are reacting, you said that it's a footnote for companies? State tax liability is a footnote for companies, yes. Um, there was a study by Michael Mazaroff several years ago that suggested that state corporate income taxes are one half of one percent of corporate expenses. And so uh, I, I, for one, do not buy the argument that state corporate tax policy is going to drive business decisions. It's just too small a number. If state corporate taxation ends up being such a small percentage of the overall taxes paid by these companies, to whom is this such a big deal? And why are we hearing companies sort of complain about the uncertainty? Well, the uncertainty is, is very understandable. I mean, they have to, they have to file returns. Uh, Guilty came into effect in 2018. Those returns are now due in October of 2019. So I certainly understand uh, their concerns about the lack of certainty. And I think the states do need to step up there. And, and that involves the state legislatures as well. The state legislatures need to decide what they want to do with this. But certainly the amount of attention paid to the tax is disproportionate to the amount of taxes paid. So we've talked about guilty, uh, but there's other international provisions like the repatriation tax and FIDI. How are states dealing with those? Again, the states have been pretty far over the map when it comes to repatriation. Uh, repatriation was a one-time tax in 2017. Uh, came on the states very quickly. They passed the law in December 23. The tax was due December 31. And, uh, and basically as part of the transition from a residency-based system of taxation to more of a territorial system. It's still just a quasi-territorial system. The main difference there is that foreign dividends are no longer going to be taxed when repatriated. They needed something to um, try to bring back some of the income that had been uh, deferred overseas, and rep repatriation was it. Uh, the states have been fairly all over the map again, Again, part of the question was, is repatriation a dividend, is it subpart F income, or is it something else? And uh, most, it is taxed under subpart F of the Internal Revenue Code. Under the Kraft General Foods uh, case came out in 1992, there was some question as to whether that case would also apply to subpart F, which some people call a deemed dividend. And so most states have taken the position that they would not tax repatriation because it was under subpart F and they had already made either a policy decision or a statutory decision that they were not going to tax subpart F. So the great majority of states have not uh, chosen to tax much repatriation at the corporate level. At the individual level, on the other hand, uh, most states have chosen to tax repatriation. So. Um, we haven't really seen good revenue estimates yet, either at the individual or at the corporate level, for how much income really came in. Uh, the states are just now starting to see those returns and starting to audit those returns. So it's kind of up in the air as to how much repatriation income really did flow into the state coffers. We think it's significant, but we don't know really uh, what those numbers are yet. Uh, the second 
interesting part of the tax reform is FIDI. Um, it is a it is a deduction, if you will, for um, how how should I put it? It's a, a deduction for uh, export. Now this it's called a special deduction. It comes in under line thirty, and only about eight states use line thirty of the federal tax code. So most states will not conform to the FIDI deduction unless they choose to do through do so through legislation. And so far, I think about eight states have said that they, they will allow the FIDI deduction. Some people say it should be viewed as, as, as a kind of a tandem mirror position of, of guilty. Although the tax calculations are similar, I think they serve very different purposes, and I don't think that it's appropriate to view them necessarily as mirror images of each other. Thank you so much for your time today, Bruce. My pleasure to be here. And here's some of the week's tax and accounting news. Find these headlines and more at news.bloombergtax.com. If you're interested in getting into the top 1% of Americans income-wise, you'll have to bring in at least $515,000 a year. That was the figure for 2017 anyway, according to data the IRS just released. The report said the top 1% earned 21% of total U.S. income that year and paid 38.5% of federal individual income taxes. Uber and Lyft have a new challenge to their business model, this time from New Jersey labor auditors. They're investigating the companies for possibly classifying drivers incorrectly as independent contractors. The outcome of the investigation could mean the companies have to pay minimum wage and overtime. Plus, the companies could be on the hook for employment taxes. And be sure to check out our insights, where practitioners explore hot topics in tax and accounting. This week, Bill Bosco, president of Leasing 101, examines the lease versus buy calculation in the post-2017 tax law era and under current accounting standards. He says it's almost always better to lease nowadays, but he has advice on how to go about it. That's it for this week's edition. From Washington, I'm Siri Belusu. Cases and Controversies is all about the Supreme Court. One of the oh, come on. Words. You know, come on. Well, I agree Be with serious. you. We sit down with leading practitioners and scholars to break down these cases. I mean, I'm glad you brought that up so I didn't have to. But, uh... <laughs> oh, I interesting, know that. Right? That is See? interesting. I guess my imagination is running wild. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> Tune in every week for our deep dive and sneak peek episodes wherever you get your podcasts. As always, check out the latest at news.bloomberglaw.com. Ha, 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 ha.